It's been such a privilege to be with all of you over these days and to just watch the unfolding that happens. There's something really mysterious about retreats where things just happen, you know. We go into this depth of our being and things are revealed. And um, sometimes it's really hard and painful and boring and, you know, a whole host of other challenges. And sometimes it's all of that and there's joy and connection and intimacy with yourself. And usually it's a big mix of the two. I'm going to talk tonight on the topic of our retreat, which is the convergence of wisdom and love. So just in case you thought we were not going to cover that, (laughs) that's now. And I was thinking about when I was teaching the loving-kindness practice yesterday and I brought up that image of the the vase, that actually it's called the Reuben vase because of the person who came up with that optical illusion, um, where it's, it's a face or it's a vase. It's a face or a vase. Um, and I think actually that's the convergence of love and wisdom. Like they fit together and sometimes one is more foreground, one is more background. But they, they're, they're absolutely inseparable. And wisdom is embedded in love and love is embedded in wisdom. And sometimes there's lots of... I think it was even mentioned that it's talked about sometimes as the wings of a bird. One wing is love, one wing is wisdom. And we need both, otherwise the bird's going to be lopsided. You know, it can't fly properly. One of the great Indian uh, teachers named Sri Nisargadatta said a very famous quote, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows, right? So both are true. And how do we hold both? And how do we understand and unpack both? Just give you a few more metaphors of how they work together. And um, love and wisdom are like a box and its lid. They're like two arrows pointing in midair, meeting each other. They're like one hand embracing the other hand. They go together, like Captain and Tennille or something. (laughs) Sorry, that's an old, like an old, old school. (laughs) Anybody of a certain age has no idea what I just was talking about, but you know what I mean. It just popped into my head, I'm sorry. I do this sometimes when I give talks, just things pop into my head. Okay. so, so how, let's take a look. Let's, I want to kind of take them side by side and really look at wisdom and how wisdom works and how love is embedded in wisdom and how wisdom is embedded in love and how they fit together. So let's start with insight because we're here doing insight meditation. And it's a really interesting process of how insight arises, right? Because insight is not knowledge. Insight is not like a book knowledge where someone says to you, you know, you learn something and then you regurgitate it. Insight is like an emergence from within you of an inner wisdom. Instead of being like a head down wisdom, it's more like a body up wisdom. And so what we do here in this practice of of um, cultivating a calm and clear mind, which is the goal, at least the initial goal of what we're doing. We're trying to settle our mind so that we can allow clear seeing to happen. And so we keep, we keep you know, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, or coming back to listening, or coming back to your feet, because what that does is it's a, it allows our, our mind to settle. And 
an example of this is sometimes um, when people teach meditation to kids, they often use the example of a glitter ball. So, you know, like one of those plastic balls that's see-through and filled with glitter. And you take it and you shake it up. And then you ask the kids, like, can you see through the glitter ball? And of course you can. It's just all the glitter is in it. So they put it in front of the kids and they say, okay, everybody, let's just breathe a few times. And the children will breathe and then the glitter will settle to the bottom and then lo and behold you can see through the glitter ball. And it's the same idea with how our mind works, how we, we calm our mind through these practices. Calming in and of itself is valuable. So it's not like, it's not like we are doing it for a reason necessarily, but it also can allow for us to see clearly, for clear discrimination to happen for us to understand ourselves better and for the allow, allowing of insight to arise from within us because we've calmed the glitter in our mind, right? It's all settled down and now, oh, boom, things are appearing. It's like, another analogy is like you plant the field, right? You're, you're, you, you're plow, I'm sorry, you're plowing the field and plowing the field and you plant and you don't actually know when the, when the flowers are going to grow or the plants are going to grow, but you're doing the work that it takes to have the insight arise. And that's what happens because suddenly insight appears out of nowhere. And sometimes the insight is really, you know, mundane. Like, oh, my left nostril is breathing heavily, more heavily than my right nostril. You know, sometimes it's like kind of weird insight. Sometimes, you know, what the big insight everybody has right away is my mind is insane. <laughs> That's a good one, right? We get that right away. I had no idea how much my mind was jumping around. So, but then the insights can deepen and we start to see um, more about ourselves, about our psychology, about our history, insights into the practice insights into the nature of reality. We start to see the interconnected nature of things, the transient nature of things, the truth, as Matthew keeps talking about, of this human condition. Because we've prepared our mind in such a way that these insights can come. Now, you can't force them. So please don't sit here going, okay, if I just meditate harder, I'm going to have an insight. doesn't work like that. Believe me, I've tried. I've tried. It doesn't work that way. It's much more mm, spontaneous. It's much more creating the conditions and allowing this to arise. But then what happens often is we have an insight and then we like grab onto it. Oh, great. I finally had an insight. Excellent. And then you start thinking about it and thinking about it. And then, you know, it's just it, like, that's not helpful either. It's helpful, of course, to reflect a little bit. But I once had a teacher that said, sometimes meditation insights can be like, tchotchkes that you just put on the wall, right? In a shelf, on a shelf, you know, tchotchkes are those little crappy figurine kind of things, right? Like we, we're so proud of our insights. Oh, I had this understanding, but we actually also have to let go of those insights. That we have them and there's, there's, there's a second component to insight and all of this is leading to wisdom is that as we have insight, there's something inside us begins to change. And so it's a, there's this cumulative process of seeing ourselves more clearly. And sometimes the insight arises because we talk to a teacher and they help us see something about ourselves. Or sometimes it's something you hear in the talks. And of course, outside of here, there's many ways we have insight, whether it's talking to a friend or reading something. Or there, but there's something that happens inside that your heart kind of settles and goes, okay, I get it. There's something here that's true, that's real, that's meaningful. And we feel it, like you know. It's different than, than some knowledge that you can check off. Oh, I've studied this. It's like a deep knowing inside your body. And um, so we can have these insights that over time become wisdom. Like, like it's, it's the... I think of it as kind of like, uh, it's cumulative and as we have insight, but of course wisdom comes, as wisdom comes through life experience and making mistakes and learning from your mistakes and just living life, wisdom comes. But this practice has always been, at least for me and for many of 
my friends and colleagues, it's been a place to come into more wisdom. But there's also the piece of having to trust the wisdom because it's, it's an inner wisdom. And oftentimes we've learned ways of uh, just not believing and not trusting in ourselves. Like that's what our conditioning has given us. And so the wisdom arises or the insight arises and then there's a learning to trust. And then there's a taking that out into the world and acting from it. And that doesn't always happen all at once because sometimes in the world we don't act from wisdom even though we may know better, but we don't always do it. But it, there's, a, there's a very mysterious process here. Something's at work where people begin to have more, just they become more sensible in a way, like more connected to themselves, more noticing through our meditation practice what leads to harm and what leads away from harm. What brings me more connection, more intimacy with my life and the world? What helps me be more available to my friends and my community and my family? And as you see that, this, this, this kind of like wisdom grows. And it's rooted in the awareness practice that we're doing. It's rooted in this awareness practice. Wisdom is embedded in the awareness practice. Awareness itself, we, we can rest our attention in awareness. We can rest our mind in awareness. And as our mind settles, we open to the nature of reality. And we recognize that all the stories that we carry about ourselves, they're just stories. We begin to see through awareness that we are not our anxiety. We are not our grief. We are not our rage. We are not our jealousy. We are not our confusion. But we're so much greater than that. And as human beings, we have the capacity to find the wisdom that comes from resting our attention, just rest in awareness. And this is something that, as we're practicing here, you're having these moments where you rest in awareness. You have when you stop and you see those turkeys, oh my gosh, today the turkeys, there are a few people in my group, do you know what the turkey did? (laughs) It came to the door where I was teaching in the council house and started pecking at us, like Uh, like that, and Dana illuminated me. Now I have more wisdom about turkeys. Apparently it saw itself and it was fighting with itself. (laughs) (laughs) But we're like that, right? (laughs) We're kind of like those turkeys, on ourselves. It was really incredible, but I have no idea why I was talking about the turkeys. Anyway, um, so, so we learn to see, we, we shift our relationship to the thoughts that get so caught in the I am this and this something's wrong with me and something's wrong with life. And, and we begin to have, oh, that's right, that you have these moments sometimes when they're looking at the turkey, (laughs) or when you were, I just walked up here and all of you, there were so many of you just standing, doing kind of a standing meditation, staring out at the beauty, and I don't know what was going on in your mind. Maybe you were sitting there worrying about everything you have to do when you get home or something, but a lot of you looked really peaceful, like you were at rest, that there was something that you were allowing yourself to rest in the spaciousness of the Spirit Rock Hills, and of your own inner spaciousness that we're trying to cultivate here. And this is just, this is a journey. This is a lifelong journey of stepping more and more into this inner spaciousness, which is embedded in the wisdom, or maybe the wisdom's embedded in the spaciousness. So just to say a little bit about what we've been doing with thoughts, because this is really important, and I think you know it already, but I just want to reiterate, it's, it's the, the, um, the N in RAIN, the non-identification. That this is where freedom begins to occur when we recognize that our thoughts are just thoughts. That they're not something we have to believe all the time or our emotions are just emotions. They're weather patterns passing through me. 
And it's amazing when you have this moment where you're like, oh, there was a thought and it just came and it went. How interesting. I first, I used to think, or at that moment, maybe you thought it very, you thought, okay, I'm a terrible meditator. The person next to me is such a great meditator. I stink. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Or you're in the dining hall and you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what if they run out of food? They're going to run out of food. It's so good today. What am I going to do? Let's see, it was uh, Indian yesterday and it was... And today it was more kind of Japanese style and I think it was, and your mind just starts going off and oh, I'm not going to get enough food. And then you go, wow, there's desire here. There's desire, there's wanting. Okay, settle back, relax. Just be here in this moment. Feel my feet, take a breath. I don't have to get caught in that thought. And I often use the analogy of our thoughts are like trains, You know, there's a train, and you've seen this since you've been meditating. There's a train, and you get on the train, and the thought, it just goes 20 miles down the track. Thinking this, thinking that. What are they having tomorrow? Oh, no, we're not going to have lunch tomorrow. Darn, that's the end of Spirit Rock food. I have to cook for myself now. Oh, man. That was right. And clean up for myself. Okay, so your mind is doing that, and it's the next thing you know, it's 20 miles down the track. So at that moment, there's a moment that you kind of wake up. And you realize that um, I've been lost in thought. And that's a moment that you basically, you get off the train. But there's another option. And that other option is that you never get on the train in the first place. That you stay at the station and let the train go. And that's a kind of wisdom of how we can work with our thoughts. The thought arises, it comes, it goes we see the changing nature of reality and we see it in our meditation practice. And then we can take this out into the world because when we are caught in whatever thought is making us really miserable, we can remember, get off the train. Just get off the train. Or another image I like is like um, cartoons, when people in cartoons have thoughts coming out of them, like a thought bubble. So you're thinking your thought and you take the pin of mindfulness and you just go pop and the thought dissolves. It doesn't always work that way, but often it does and how wonderful when that happens. And we also learn this measure of non-identification or disidentification through labeling, through just saying, oh, there's planning, there's imagining, there's judging. There's self-judgment. Like we can label, I don't know if you've tried labeling today, but labeling is very helpful when you're caught in these thoughts and emotions. It's like the R in RAIN, it's the recognize. And then sometimes when we're having thoughts that are really intense, what am I feeling in my body? What's happening in my body? Okay, there's a, a thought loop that just keeps playing and playing and playing. And as I check into my body and my heart, I realize, wow, There's so much anxiety here. And can I hold this anxiety with compassion? Can I hold this anxiety with compassion and with kindness and with awareness, with a kind attention? And this is our work and this is the cultivation of this this wisdom mind. One of the things that develops with our wisdom mind, and we've mentioned it some on this retreat, is this quality of equanimity. And equanimity is a mind that is even-minded and balanced in the face of all that life brings. Right? Life is just, I mean, you know what life is like. You're a human. I mean, there's a lot going on, and sometimes it's wonderful, and a lot of the times it's really hard. And guess what? We can't control life. We can't control life. But what we can control is our relationship to life. We can control whether we meet it with despair and self-judgment and blame and feeling like something's wrong and I blew it, or whether we meet it with curiosity and openness and a sense of like, okay, let me just understand what's going on here right now. And this fosters this ability, this equanimity. So it's, it's, a, it's a funny word. It's a very strange word in the English language. That's kind of like an old fashioned word. We don't use it a lot, but it means even mindedness, non-reactivity, balance. 
And sometimes it's associated with not being attached to the fruit of our actions. So can we act with equanimity without being attached to the fruit of our actions? It's one of the most important qualities that comes through meditation because it helps us navigate this crazy world we live in with all the ups and downs that we don't have control over. And so when you sit here on your meditation cushion or chair and you have knee pain and instead of getting up and running out of the hall screaming, you sit there and you feel it and you notice the sensations and you allow yourself to be with what is, you are cultivating equanimity. It's like a natural outcome of this practice. And this equanimity, it's so closely, I don't know, it's embedded in wisdom, it's part of wisdom, it's not exactly sure how to think about it, but they're close neighbors. So one of my favorite stories that I'll tell that I've told for a long time, but I think if you just don't tell it for like five years, then it's new again, is um, many of you know I was living in a monastery in um, in what's called Myanmar now, but it was Burma then. Um, I was living as a Buddhist nun in the monastery and it was a really, it was, I spent a year doing this and meditating, exactly what we're doing except all day long um, for many, many, many days. And while I was there, there were a lot of things that I hated. So I didn't really like the food. It was very, very hot at certain times of year. There were tons of snakes and spiders and scorpions and really awful things. And it was just, it was hard, you know, and my mind didn't have much equanimity. It was like an absence of equanimity. I was like the opposite, poster child for the opposite of equanimity. That was me. (laughs) And then there was this period of time where the mosquitoes got really bad. So even though there were all these other giant weird bugs and things, but the mosquitoes got really bad. So I started spending my days designing mosquito traps. So first, this one that I made um, was pretty good. I I took a bucket of lake water, and I waited for the mosquitoes to land on it, and I'd take this other bucket and cover it up, and I'd rush them out of my little hut that I was living in. Pretty good. Then I realized the hut had no screens, so I would would cover everything up and close all the windows and cover up the... There were holes for ventilation. I would cover them with magazines, but then I would start to boil. And it was like, you know, in the hundreds degrees. And then I, um, then I found this great one, which was at night, I would turn on the outdoor light, stand in front of the window, and the um, mosquitoes would come like charging towards me, and I'd jump out of the way, and it would fly out the window. They would all fly out the window. It was like a Toreador. Like. Um, that worked. It was really good, actually. Um, but here's the problem. You can figure it out, right? I wasn't meditating. (laughs) I was spending all my time designing mosquito traps. Um, And by the way, recently, I just saw an article about some new mosquito trap that someone's designed that has to do with water buckets. (laughs) And I was like, I was so excited. I'm like, I thought of that 20 years ago in Burma. But anyway, it's somebody figured it out. Okay. my point is, I wasn't meditating. I, was, I had no equanimity. I was, do, I was spending all this time trying to control, control the conditions. And what I realized was that there was always going to be another mosquito, right? There's always something. And so I had a choice. I could keep trying to figure out how to control life, or I could develop a mind that could be okay even with the mosquitoes. And that was what I chose. And it was, it was, you know, this was a lesson of course for life. And something for me that, you know, that that how do we find a way to be okay even in the midst of the challenges of life? And there's so many challenges. But this is the wisdom of equanimity, the wisdom of equanimity, this even-mindedness. And oftentimes when we're in a place of resting in a spacious awareness, we can hold the full human condition 
Our mind is vast enough to let ourselves be in the midst of all the stuff that's happening. That it's not disturbing the innate wakefulness of the mind. That we can just be. We can be okay. One of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, says, simply let experience take place very freely so that your open heart is suffused with the tenderness of true compassion. But the equanimity piece, so this we're going back, we're going to pull love in in a moment, but is letting experience take place very freely. Right? That's an equanimity. Let experience take place very freely. What could you do? Could you do that right now? Just let experience take place very freely. It's happening whether or not you uh, try to control it, right? Experience is happening. It is happening freely. But if can we let it? It's the equanimity that allows it to be there. Because what we're learning to do and is we're learning this process of letting go of letting go, and Matthew's been talking, we've all been talking about it, letting go. When we hold on to something and we suffer, when Dana was in that first retreat and she just wanted the beeping to stop so much and it wouldn't stop, she's holding on, she's rigidifying, she's suffering. And then in the moment she realized this was not (laughs) going to (laughs) work, there was a letting go that happened, a freedom and you're having that experience all the time when you want the, you want the, you know, udon noodles, and then you're, I gotta get the udon noodles. I gotta get the udon noodles. Or maybe there's a cookie. I wonder if there's a cookie. There's this wanting and trying to hold on to and trying to make experience be the way you want it to be. And there are these moments where we go, oh, I'm just gonna let go. And it may not be so conscious because sometimes things let go of us. Sometimes there's a letting go, a natural letting go process that happens just by bringing awareness to something. The analogy I love and I've used for years, and I'm sorry that it's also not animal friendly, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, We'll assume, well, I'll I'll come up with a good ending to it. The way they catch monkeys in Thailand when they want to trap monkeys, some of you have heard this, is they hollow out a coconut and they make a hole in it the size of the hand of a, co- uh, of a monkey that can reach in. And they put a banana inside. And so they, the monkeys reach in, grab the banana, and guess what? They're stuck. And then the coconut's secured to the tree or something, so it can't get away. So what do they have to do to, to, to escape, to be free? What do they have to do? Let go of the banana, right? The monkeys somehow don't get it, but guess what? Neither do we. (laughs) Um, But then I'm going to say that there are many smart monkeys who escape and live gaily in the trees and are all happy and everybody's good. Because um, it is possible. We we, We grab that banana all the time. And we grab that banana and we don't let go and we suffer, just like that monkey suffers. And then the moment that something makes us let go or the wisdom kicks in and we realize it and we let go, boom, there is freedom. There is freedom right here and right now. And then Matthew said, well, what is here in the wake of letting go? And he suggested that the answer was love. I think there's a lot of things here in the wake of letting go. There's peace and wisdom, and awareness. Awareness is here. When we let go, can we let go into the spaciousness of awareness? Can we let go into love? Sometimes um, one of the places I get tripped up as a parent is when I want my daughter to be a certain way, and it's not the way she wants to be. Can anyone relate? Yeah, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how much stuff I put on her. Like, you have to be this way. And then I'm, then I'm grabbing onto the banana because I'm suffering so much because she's just not that way. 
and I want her to be, and I'm mad, and I try to figure it out and manipulate. Well, maybe if you just do that, then I'll be happy, and then you'll be the way I want you to be. Like an example, <laughs> some of my students who are here know this, that this happened recently. Like, my daughter may be possibly the only child on the planet who does not like Harry Potter. I know, shocking, right? Your jaw just dropped. Um, she, she, she just is not into Harry Potter. And I, for some reason, have grabbed that banana really hard. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't like Harry Potter? Harry Potter is so amazing. Every kid likes Harry Potter. And I just have this, I've, I've like put her in like this adversarial relationship with her that she's got to like Harry Potter. And I think it's my, I mean, it's my fault because... <laughs> I tried to read it to her when she was little and it kind of scared her and that just set it up for failure. Um, but, but every now and then I'm like, hey, want to try Harry Potter? No. <laughs> How about the movie? No. <laughs> you know, it, it just, just she, she, you know, and of course, the more I want it, the more she resists, as we all know children do. And, um, but what's happening inside me is there's this like constriction and there's a sense that there's something wrong and it needs to be a certain way and if only she would be this way, then I will be happy. And so my practice is to <sighs> settle back and allow myself to just be aware of the contraction and aware of the need and the story that I carry. And as I do that, I begin to soften and just settle a little bit and let go of this particular banana. And then the more, the more I do that, the more I realize how absurd it is that I need her to do this thing, particularly this thing. It's not a big deal in any way. But I settle back and guess what happens? I see her more clearly. Love flows in. So maybe Matthew's right. That's the answer. Love flows in in the wake of letting go. But love and wisdom and connection, and I see her for who she is instead of who I want her to be. And this is what I feel like I do all day long as a parent. <laughs> You know, work with my stories of who I think she's supposed to be, come back into myself, relax, release, drop the banana, and then see her for who she is. And then, of course, the engagement between us is so much more beautiful. There's so much more love there. So let's, let's touch now on love. And... <sighs> So this convergence of wisdom, which I've been talking about, and then love. And we've been doing the practices that cultivate more love, this practice of loving kindness. And as I suggested also, you know, the other day, I said, embedded in mindfulness is love. Some people say it's a kind attention. This willingness to pay attention, one of our colleagues Marvin Belzer, he'll say, I think love is simply the willingness to pay attention. And so with love, we, so, so in the mindfulness, there can be a sweetness and a connection that's cultivated. And then we can deliberately cultivate love, right? We, and, and, and as you'll, I think you'll see, there's wisdom within the love itself. So for some of us, we start with the doorway of learning to love ourselves, And that's a really hard one for most people. And we've been, there. Dana was talking about the way we've sort of been enculturated to forget and disconnect from our own basic goodness, you know? And so, and the culture just reinforces it and our upbringing reinforces it and many many people that I meet over the years so many people struggle with this absence of self-love and it's actually not wise not loving yourself is not wise or loving yourself is wise it's not your fault by the way, because if you suddenly, oh, I'm not wise because I don't love myself. No, it, it, I mean, it's, you have habitual reminders and habitual conditioning that teaches you to be self-judgmental and self-critical. Um, 
And everybody, I mean, so many people struggle with, I just, I'll just read you this quote. This is a quote from the comedian Amy Poehler, who was on um, Saturday Night Live for many years and does many other things. Um, she says, I wish I could tell you that being on television or having a nice picture in a magazine suddenly washes away all those thoughts of self-judgment, but it really doesn't. I wish I were taller or had leaner hands or a less crazy smile. I don't like my legs especially. I used to have a terrific flat stomach, but now it's kind of blown out after two giant babies used it as a short-term apartment. <laughs> but you know, when Amy Poehler, someone that like amazingly talented and you know, the icons of the, or cult- of the culture, like, the, like people are struggling with the self-hatred. And so we come into mindfulness practice and com- kindness practice and we begin to work this place. And we saw how when we tried to do loving kindness, how hard it was to do it for ourselves. That we can do it for everyone the whole world over, but not for me. And that's really, really rough and kind of a sorry state of affairs, but it's what most people experience. There's a concept called self-compassion, and self-compassion, which Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, she's a researcher at the University of Texas, and he's a psychologist in Massachusetts. Many of you are familiar with mindful self-compassion. And they define self-compassion as being as not being self-esteem, not like building yourself up to make you feel good, not saying good job, good job, like parents do to kids all the time these days, right? Um, or uh, it's not about making you feel better about yourself. It's about helping you to see that even with your flaws, even with the places inside you that you know, you've hurt yourself or someone else, that you're still okay. That you're still okay in spite of your flaws. And so this is a beautiful notion and it comes through the cultivation of mindfulness, more um, uh, loving kindness practices for ourselves, and also through uh, the recognition of our shared humanity that we're not the only one. And this is kind of intuitively obvious, but we often forget it. So when we're really judgmental of ourselves, we often forget that we are not the only one. So just to demonstrate here, how many of you are parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Okay, put your hand down. Raise your hand if you have ever been a rotten parent. (laughs) Okay, look around, guess what? (laughs) Look around, (laughs) we've all. Raise your hand if you've ever been a kid. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever been a rotten kid. <laughs> okay, we, I mean, it is universal. Raise your hand if you've ever looked in the mirror and not liked what you saw. Look around. We're not the, you're not the only one. I could say many more things and probably we would all raise our hands because that's what it's kind of is being alive these days. And so with these practices, we can recognize our shared humanity. We can send kindness to ourselves. We can shift the way that we relate to ourselves so there's more love here. We can use mindfulness to notice the judging thoughts, the notice that we've gotten on that judgment train and to get off the train. And this is very powerful work and this is one of the beautiful things we do with this practice. And when you leave here, keep going with it. You know, when you leave here, keep practicing compassion for yourself. And maybe it's not really possible for a while and for some people it's not, even for a long time. I had one teacher who said that she was, it was impossible for her to find anyone to send kindness to until she realized she could send it to her stuffed animal. Whatever works, whatever works. So we bring these, um, this kindness and we begin to shift the level of kindness in our being. And we stop being so harsh on ourselves. Here's a story. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. 
The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long now. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. When she told she couldn't have it, she began to cry, and the mother said, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. At the checkout stand, she wanted gum. She burst into a tantrum. The mother said serenely, Monica, we'll be through the checkout in five minutes. Then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. The mother replied, what are you talking about? I'm Monica. (laughs) My little girl's name is Tammy. (laughs) So (laughs) we can change the self-talk. We can, this practice can help us be more loving. With wisdom, we realize that these, I am not my thoughts. I am not my self-judgment. I am not my grief. I can let go. I can sit in a place of spacious awareness or even just notice my breath instead of go get on that train that takes me down the I am unworthy track and come more and more into a place of love. And sometimes the doorway to love isn't through ourselves, it's more for others. For some people, it's actually a really easy thing to do. For some people, just to connect and send love out. And for some people, it's harder to do. But what we can do is we cultivate the love by doing the practices. May you be happy, may you be peaceful. Or a one-on-one willingness to pay attention any of this work that's really about seeing another person, being intimate, sending compassion, sending kindness, we start to feel the boundlessness of our heart. The boundlessness of our heart. Our hearts are not limited. Our hearts are not limited. I think we sometimes think, I only have so much love to give, but I think that's a fallacy. I think we have endless amounts of love to give. There are no, just like space is boundless. Space is boundless. Our heart is boundless. So maybe space and awareness and the wisdom of awareness and love and all of it is boundless, boundless, endless. And we can sometimes remember that and check into that. Conditional love is not boundless. Love where you're expecting something from someone else or you need them to be a certain way, that's not boundless. But there is a deep letting go and letting be in the face of another human being that we can perceive as love. And as we keep showing up for ourselves or for other people, we develop this capacity to love. And we recognize the wisdom of this capacity. And as I said earlier, when I was talking about seeing my daughter more fully, it's like there's an opening of love that's kind of inexpressible. It's just wow, you are who you are and I see you and I am letting you be you. And this is a profound connection and intimacy that happens. And then she makes space for me to be me. So the last thing I want to talk about is an archetype that I think embodies wisdom and love. And that is a Buddhist archetype of the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva is um, a being who is dedicated to waking up or their own spiritual development or understanding themselves and waking up for the sake of all beings. So it's this incredible, incredible archetype of um, vision and commitment of a way to live in the world. And so bodhi just means awake and sattva means being. And 
I also see it as an exp- the bodhisattva is something that one could kind of commit to. I mean, you don't have to call it a bodhisattva. Some of you really may be drawn to the idea of a bodhisattva. Wow, could I be this? Could I make this commitment to waking up? To, to the merging, the um, merging of comp- love and wisdom, to living a life of love and wisdom, having the wisdom of understanding self and letting go and disidentification and opening to reality. And then out of that, the love, the service comes. This is the bodhisattva ideal. Oops. That's weird. Okay. It's an expression of our deepest aspiration to wake up with everyone else to live a life of wisdom and compassion, to awaken together, to live a fearless and committed life. It can sound very lofty, like, oh, well, that's, you know, some, like it's an archetype, I keep calling it, but I think there's something that we can relate to, kind of more of an ordinary bodhisattva about like just just a person who is on the path, who's making this commitment to more wisdom and compassion, and who's making a commitment maybe to have there be some way of serving, some manifestation of it. And it doesn't have to be there's not there's no like hard and fast rules what it's supposed to look like. It doesn't mean you have to be an activist. You may be, and that may be your expression, your bodhisattva action. But it may be the way that you parent or the way that you, you're a teacher and how you teach your, the children you work with. Or it can be, the most important thing is that if we're interested in this, that we make it our own. And I know for me, for the last probably 20 years or so, maybe longer, I've sort of had a commitment that I say, that's in the spirit, and I say, For as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I be the living ground of love for all beings. And I say that most mornings. And it never really grows old because every time I say it, it just something touches me in my heart about my commitments in life. And I know that, you know, many of you are just here for the first time and I'm not suggesting that you have to leave here and become bodhisattvas. And, but I just, uh, just want to give you this frame of a way of thinking about how to hold with equanimity, with wisdom, the suffering of the world. That we can practice equanimity and letting go and accepting reality as it is, but also working from cha- for change from a place of clear seeing from a place of love. Alice Walker has that book with that great title, You Can Save What You Love. So important. So finding a way of expressing this congruence, this merging of wisdom and love, whether it's how we lead our lives with integrity, whether it's service that we do, whether it's our commitment to our meditation practice, all of this can um, be a way that our practice unfolds. And I just want to remind you, especially for those of you who are just starting out, it's a living process. It's not like you come on one retreat, you get it and you go home, that's it. It's our lives, right? Once you've sort of like opened up and taken a little step, there's a lot to explore in the service of more wisdom and more love. And wow, life gets pretty amazing because we connect more and more to these places of spaciousness and wisdom and equanimity and joy and gentleness and humility and fearlessness and hope. And these are the fruits of the work that we're doing here And this is something that it's available to every single one of us. So I just want to end with one of my favorite poems from Diane Ackerman. 
the naturalist and writer. She writes, it's called School Prayer. In the name of the daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it, and the uttermost night and the plants bursting with seeds and the crowning seasons, I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell on earth, my home, and in the mansions of the stars. This is an expression of love, of wisdom, of bodhisattva-ness, of, of hope. So let's just take a moment to connect into ourselves. And just really noticing what's happening inside you. I just want to say, and I just want you to kind of sit with this, that wherever it is that you are suffering, you can cultivate the capacity to be with yourself. That you can hold yourself in love and wisdom with awareness. It's available to you. As I say that, notice what happens inside you. And if there's a feeling of hope or strength or something, really let that be here. If there's a whole bunch of yeah buts, we might say, for whatever it is I'm feeling right now, may I hold this too with kindness. time for dinner. We'll see you back here at 7.45? No, 15? 7.15. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.